Would you join with me in prayer? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to be here and to open up your word together. What a privilege it is to have your word at our fingertips. And so I pray, Lord, that you fill us with your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts up to your word even as we open your word up to us. We give you this time in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. I love me a good form letter. Um, I think form letters, especially in this digital era, we're, we're losing the joy of the form letter. But I, I love form letters, especially the ones that acknowledge they're a form letter. Um, you know, it's, it's typed out, it's printed, and there's like a, it's like a fill in the blank. But then, but then they use like this blue script font to write your name in. To, like, it's a form letter, but I'm thinking of you. And so it, it's like, dear Kevin, you know, but I love that. Um, my brother, Lindsay, uh, used to get form letters addressed to Miss Lindsay Wright. He never, he never, that ever ended well. Uh, so uh, today I'd like to start a series where we're looking at the greatest form letter in history, uh, which is the book of Ephesians. So I want you to open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. That's 1133 in your pew Bibles. And I want to look at this form letter. Wendy actually requested this series. So, because um, she likes Ephesians. But I want to look at what, he, what Paul writes here. He says, in, in Ephesians 1.1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Which means I probably have to stop for a second and unpack just a smidgy bit of that so that we understand. First off, the word apostle. You remember this means sent one, right? Paul, I've been sent by God himself. Paul's probably writing this while chained up for his faith, so he can only send a letter. It's like, I've been sent, but all I can do is send this letter to you guys. But I'm sending the letter. Secondly, he's mailing it to the saints, which is not the football team, nor is it to dead Christians with quasi-mystical, magical abilities. The word saints literally just means set-apart ones, right? Holy ones. When Paul uses this, when scripture talks about the saints, it's talking about people who have been set apart for the Lord, which means he's talking about Christians. You've all been bought and paid for. You've all been set apart for the Lord. You have been designed to be holy ambassadors of a holy kingdom. So when he's writing to the saints, he's not writing to the particularly good Christians like Linda. He's right. Is that the way we should look at our church? Well, I mean, Lucy, I mean, she's really good at this. Donna is good too. No, I mean, should we be, is that the way we should be looking at it? No, it's to everybody who is set apart. Third, when Paul says Ephesus, he doesn't mean Ephesus. And it's important that we realize the original Greek, the letter says, to the saints in fill in the blank. It's a form letter. And I'll ask the AV team to pop up a, 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 a map here. But this is an original form letter written to the churches in Asia Minor in western Turkey. The first place it's being sent is to Ephesus. But it's supposed to be handed off to Smyrna and Pergamum and Theater to all these. Right? And so maybe we should read this as saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea, the faithful in Christ Jesus. By the way, does that list sound familiar? Does that order sound familiar? Where? From Revelation. That's the cities in Revelation that we talk about the whole lampstand things. And it's the same order. 
as the cities in Revelation, right? Because much like this form letter to, to uh, Asia Minor, that's the order that you would go in along your trip, go, starting at Ephesus at the coast, then going up and then down. It's the order that goes from city to city. So the first city to receive this form letter was Ephesus on the coast. And for many people, the, the name stuck. They wrote the name Ephesus in. Everybody went, oh, that's the name of it. But if you look at the map for one more sec, Marcion, who we discussed in, in, in Sunday school this morning, right? If you look at, okay, well, okay. If you look at the map, Marcion referred to it as the letter to Laodicea. Why? Because that's the last place it would have been. That's the last place that scribbled their name in. So Marcion will, will quote from the book of Ephesians, but to him it's the book of the Laodiceans. So anyway, um, what themes do you remember seeing in the letters from Jesus to the various churches in the book of Revelation? What themes do you remember seeing? I mean, they're doing some things right, some things badly. Different ones are having different issues. What are they doing well at? Um, what did Sarah just read from the book of Revelation about what Ephesus was doing well at. They were doing great at a bunch of good churchy things, right? Their doctrine was solid. They, they were saying, oh, we're, we're getting rid of people that, are, that are, are, are messing with other people and drawing them away from the Lord. We're trying to have a lot of good doctrine. But they'd lost that interactive relational love that they had with God, the love that drew them to God in the first place, that drew them to salvation in the first place. And I think, I think any of us can at least sort of understand that. Haven't you at least sort of gone through that at various points? The idea of going, I, I mean, I, I love the Lord, but I'm, I'm kind of doing what I'm doing because I'm used to it, because I'm, it's the right thing to do, because whatever. You, you, can, you can sometimes forget that it's not enough just to believe in God. You need to be desiring God. I mean, if you... If you, if you don't really work on your relationship, your marriage, if you don't actively, consciously work on that, can't it sometimes get stale? It doesn't mean that you're automatically leading to divorce. Ah, you're done. But it, a thousand little slights, a lot of little disfluencies, a lot of minor hiccups, a lot of times where you made decisions not with your spouse. After a while, can't you just become more and more distanced? Sometimes your relationship can just be more about relational inertia than it is about passionate attachment. If that's the truth with your marriage, can't that be the truth sometimes with your relationship with God? Again, it doesn't mean it's like, oh, no, you've screwed things up. That's it. You're, you're, you're out of the pool. But can't it become stale when it's supposed to be vibrant? Can't it become rote when it's supposed to be alive and living and active? Well, unlike, I should clarify, because unlike the, the other letters from Paul, this one isn't written to specifically address a specific issue in a specific church. It's not like Galatians or Corinthians or Romans where it's like, okay, here's what's specifically going wrong there in your town. Instead, it's supposed to be this broad overview of the Christian existence. What does it mean to be church, to do church? What does it mean to be a Christian? And so I want you to keep a couple, uh, your eyes out for a couple of different themes that we're going to see repeated throughout Ephesians. 
really anything from the book of Revelation is fair game. You might see some of those. But I also want you to keep your eye open for the theme that the Christian life is bigger than just what you see in front of you. It's bigger than your day-to-day personal existence. There's a worldwide church. There's a spiritual church. There's stuff going on that is so much deeper and richer than just I had a good day or I had a hard day today. I get a visa, I don't get a visa. The church is bigger and deeper and richer than that. But also that the Christian life at its core is all about relationship and reconciliation. It's talking about reconciling each of us to God. It's talking about each of us with one another. It's talking about each of us with the church because we're supposed to be one family, one household. It's talking about helping the rest of the world reconcile to God and to his family. And if, if at its core so much of it is about relationship and reconciliation and making things right, then it means that, again, a large part of our Christian life needs to be focused on are we in relationship with God? Are we in love with God? Are we working on that so that it's not just something stale, but that we are genuinely trying to keep our first love aflame and alive? Well, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Jesus Christ, all of these churches here. Actually, you know what? Let's get rid of the map now, because I could theoretically say, if this is to fill-in-the-blank church, and it's supposed to be going to a bunch of different churches. This might sound cheesy. I apologize if it sounds touchy-feely. I'm going to go out on an exegetical limb here and say, at least more than any of the other letters of Paul, we could even technically read this as saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Peoria, the faithful in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. I, and I know everybody's like, <laughs> no, but couldn't you? It's, an, it's to fill in the blank church. And now somebody's reading it to you guys. So it can just be as, honestly, it can just be as much for us as it is for Ephesus or Laodicea. Grace and peace to you guys from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his will had sent me to you guys. So I'm sending this letter. And then verses 3 through 14 are excruciating. One sentence. That is painful. You want to you give yourself a headache? This is one of two long sentences in Paul that are horrible to diagram. So my Greek instructors made us diagram both of them. But this is brutal. So I'm going to try to read it as one sentence. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight as in love. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, since in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding as he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head even Christ in whom we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we 
who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory and you who were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth to the gospel of your salvation since having believed you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are Christ's possession to the praise of his glory. Ooh! That's one sentence. That, don't ever read it like that, please. I mean, that's, you, you lose it. You lose all the, I mean, there's a lot of details in that. But I did that so that we could remember, before we carry on to verse 15 and the rest of the book, I want to remember that all of this that we're going to talk about here is Paul tumbling from one idea to the next in a single cascade of theological thought. And even then, it's not just a theology lesson. We should never forget that this is a series of individual discrete doctrines to learn, yes, but within the context of praise. He starts with praise. He talks about praise in the middle of it, and he ends with praise. It's like, let's praise God, and I can't help but tell you why we're praising God. Praise God because of this and this and this and this. And this. Praise God because of this and this and this. Let's praise God because of this and this and this. Praise God. So it's perfectly good to pull out individual doctrines, pull out individual verses, and look at them. We're going to kind of do that a little bit this morning. But even in the midst of that, I never want to forget the context. This isn't Paul trying to be a teacher. This is Paul being a worship leader for a moment. This is Paul saying, let's just praise God. Let me just share why I'm praising God with you. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Got to start with praising who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Because remember, the church is a lot deeper and richer than just what you see in front of you. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. You are saints. In love he predestined us to be adopted. By the way, did you notice something interesting in that little part there? I mean, it's all one sentence. But do you see where the little five is? In your, in your Bible? In love. That's the last verse. But five begins, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. You know why? Because the guy doing the versification didn't understand the context. It's like putting the comma in the wrong part of God rest ye merry gentlemen. You miss the whole point of the song if you put the comma in the wrong place. If you put the five here, you miss the point that it's not verse five. He predestined us. Let's talk. Let's talk doctrine. In love, he predestined us. Is how you should read that. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Praise, 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 praise. praise. Before we ever start talking about how we're supposed to be applying different parts of Ephesians so that we know how to live out horizontally, before we ever get to that, and here's how husbands and wives are supposed to, here's how you're supposed to treat, here's how you, stop. Before you ever get into anything horizontal, remember the vertical bits. Praise the vertical bits. Stop and think about all that that makes the horizontal valuable. Because maybe it's an important thing to stop and do this. It's not the horizontal parts of the Christian life that draw me to the vertical parts. Every once in a while you'll hear people say, I just, 
I mean, I poke my head out. I just love these people, and it's such a nice place, and such warm-hearted people, and I, I, they just, their love drew me to the Lord, and I, and I became a Christian, and I joined the church because I just, I just, it, it just changed my life and made everything better. And you go, swell, but that is decidedly the cart before the horse, because if you're not careful, you go. Yes, that horrible, horrible, horrible cult was filled with such nice people who did such wonderful things, and they made me feel so terribly welcome. And so, yes, I too like to sacrifice goats now. You go, just because the horizontal is great, that doesn't mean that you should be drawn to a particular vertical based on that. Instead, it's belief in the, in the vertical that should lead you to the horizontal. I, I don't follow Jesus rather than Buddha because... I feel good following Jesus, though I do. I, I don't read and pray scripture through scriptures just because it's such a good read, though the Bible is a good read. I, I don't I don't engage in good deeds because they make me feel like a good person to do so, though they do. I don't I don't love you people because you're such splendiferous people, though luckily you are. That's not why I do this. I believe in Jesus and follow Jesus rather than Buddha because I think that's capital T truth. I think that's the way things actually are. I, I love you guys because you're part of my family. I genuinely believe theologically we have been bought and paid for and we've both been adopted into the same family. You're my family. I love you. Do you understand there's a difference? I mean, yes, I do believe that being a Christian has improved my life. Yes, I think that I feel loved in our church family. Absolutely. That is not what draws me in? What draws me in is the truth that I see in Scripture. That's what draws me in. And I see it then overflowing into the horizontal. I find value in the horizontal because of the vertical, not the other way around. I have been blessed vertically. I've been blessed spiritually. I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, in the heavenly realms. Are there good things that I can get horizontally here? Are there things here in these earthly realms that I've been blessed with? Absolutely. Can I praise God for that? Yep. Can I pray for those things? Absolutely. But if I get no more of those, I've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, right? My vertical is solid. Even if nothing else from this point forward ever goes right horizontally, my vertical is is right. So if my life is based on my vertical overflowing into the horizontal and everything flowing back toward me horizontally stinks, can I still have joy? But it requires that I remember which is the cart and which is the horse, right? He starts by saying, let's praise God that we have received every spiritual blessing, everyone in the heavenly realms, and it is a blessing. The first day of my eternal life in heaven with the Lord will be infinitely, incomprehensibly better than the best day I can possibly imagine in this broken, dirty, polluted place. And I've had some really good days. And they are nothing compared to what it will be the moment I'm face-to-face with my Lord. Nothing. And that draws us to this idea that salvation isn't just some cold theological doctrinal fact. It's not just some cold thing that happens and you're supposed to do this. You were chosen, he says. You're chosen, planned for, planned about, planned. You were planned. 
since before the creation of the world. Before Genesis 1-1, not only was the cross planned for, not only was the star planned for, not only was the eclipse planned for, not only was Christ's missions planned for, you were planned for. You were chosen. Not just to be saved from the pit, not just to be saved and brought into a family, but brought into God's family. He chose you. You, who are the species and the family of those who crucified Christ. You were loved so much. You've experienced so much grace that God himself chose you to be adopted as a child before the creation of the world. If your first thought as we go through some of this and see words like predestined, is your first thought is to go, well, Calvinism, Arminianism, which is a... This is not a theology lesson. You want to discuss that? Great. Let's go out to lunch. Love to have good theology discussion. That's, that's swell. But your first thought should be in the context of what Paul is sharing this in. Praise, 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 predestined. Praise, praise, predestined. Praise, praise, praise. And you go, let's talk about the predestination. Oh, my goodness. People. Praise, praise, praise. Praise, 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 praise. This is a worship set, not a doctrinal class. I want you to hear Paul's heart, because if all this is capital T true, and I believe that it is, if you really were saved by grace, by the unmerited favor of our omnipotent, omniscient God, who has always known everything about everything, we had a whole discussion about some of that stuff in, in Sunday school this morning, then God's unmerited favor fell upon you before you did anything. Because it fell on you before anything did anything. It was before the creation of the world. You experienced God's grace, his unmerited favor, before the sun shone for the first time. It just wasn't extended to you until just recently. That's nothing short of awesome. And you should feel yourself feeling that that is amazing that God has done this. And he didn't just choose you out of some mechanistic adherence to theology. Well, I have to. If they do X, Y, and Z, then I have to. He chose you. And it gave him, according to Paul, pleasure to choose you. He desired you. He's in relationship with you. He wants to be in relationship with you. This isn't mechanistic theology. This is praise of a relationship based on genuine, active, conscious love. Do you genuinely, actively, consciously love God? Because let's be honest, the answer is sometimes no, right? I love Wendy, and I try to live in general like I love Wendy. Are there moments in our life where I am not consciously focused on loving Wendy? Yeah, I don't just sit there an entire day and go, love, love Wendy, love, love Wendy, love Wendy, love Wendy. That's unhealthy. <laughs> there are unfortunate times where I go prolonged periods where I'm thinking about, I need to do this because I'm married and she's my wife and I need to make sure that we do. And that's still taking care of her needs. And that's still a portion of what love is because love isn't just the doe-eyed affection. But then there are times where I go to an extended period of time where I'm just not thinking about her at all. Or I do things purely out of rote. I don't think God ever wants us to go a time where we're just not even thinking about him at all. I'm pretty sure Paul says pray about everything. Unceasingly be in prayer. I don't think there's ever a time where God wants us to do things out of rote. Well, I'm, just, I'm supposed to do this. Like, no. 
Don't ever worship God without meaning it. Don't ever. So I think he's saying, stop, think about what this means. In love, he predestined us. He desired us. In love, he predestined us to be adopted. To, be, to the praise of his glorious grace, his unmerited favor which he has freely given us in the one he loves. That grace that, he, that we didn't earn, God lavished on us. I love that, freely given. The word there in Greek is talking about lavishing. It, the word used it says that God went ridiculously overboard. Far more than what we needed from him. He poured it out and then poured it out and then poured it out and then poured it out. There's some theologians that argue that how much of the blood dripped off of him in the cross applies to each person. Was each drop of blood, is it a molecule of blood? I'm like, everybody got flooded to overflowing. It's not one drop of blood per person. It's the entire world being flooded in his redemptive blood. Ridiculously overboard in giving us grace that we didn't deserve. It poured over us and overflooded. Does his grace overflood from your life into the lives of people around you? Or is it just a drop of blood that hit you and you go, boom, I'm in? Or do you see yourself as just flooded with God's grace and you go, how could I not extend that to all the people around me? I am flooded with God's grace. In him, in Christ, the one whom God loves, we have redemption through his blood. Blood that we shed in angry ignorance. We've been redeemed. We've been bought back. Someone paid for a gift card that we've redeemed at the checkout counter. Christ gave us this gift card, paid for on the cross with his blood. And God planned all of this, planned for all of this, before he started sculpting Eden. Before the moon existed, before the stars were in the sky, we were given redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us, the same word poured over us and poured over us and floods everywhere with all wisdom and understanding because we crucified Christ in ignorance. Isn't that what Jesus said? Forgive them because they're ignorant. But God knew full well what was going on. Christ knew full well. God has never had ignorance. He's always known. And Jesus knew full well what was happening on the cross and why it was happening. And he's always known it since before time began, the concept of time. And he even made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. That, that all but unfathomable level of pre-planning and foresight, God's like, I'm going to let you in on this. He even made it known to us. That which he purposed, his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, and to be put into effect when the times will reach their fulfillment. Not when you or I would have thought they'd reached their fulfillment. Not when you or I would have said, oh, isn't it now? Well, isn't it now? Isn't it now? In our finite, broken, polluted minds. And I don't see that negatively. I'm not trying to be a, a negative about it. Isn't it true? We have finite understanding of things. It's broken. We're polluted by this world. We don't see the slender blue thread of God's sovereign infinite wisdom that connects everything that is to everything that was and everything that will be and connects them across the infinity of space infinity forward infinity backwards across an infinite amount of space infinity cubed no there's no way that we could fathom that there's no way that we could understand all of that 
And yet God says, I planned that. I planned for that before anything came to be. And why did he do this? What was the rationale? To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. To reconcile everything back to himself. To give us the choice to come back to him. To be part of one family. He could have just made us sock puppets in Eden, couldn't he have? I want somebody to worship me. Adam, say, worship me. Worship me. You know, I, I, could, I, I could just do that. I could make Adam and Eve marionettes that just do what I tell them to do. But he, he didn't do that, right? The whole point of Eden was that they had a choice. That's the whole point of having a tree that they're not supposed to eat from. Otherwise, it's a really weird shadow play. If God says, don't eat from the tree, and then takes his action figures and makes them eat from the tree, it's like it's a weird little game that he's playing. They've got some sort of decision-making point in this. He wanted a genuine family. In him, we were also chosen, though in this one I'm going to say a better translation of that is less about that we were chosen, more about we're given an allotment. We're given um, a, a legacy. We're given an inheritance. We've been given this inheritance, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. God plans, he plans for, and then he plans how to work those plans out, and all that before Genesis 1.1. And he did that according to his own counsel, because it gave him pleasure so that we can praise him. No, actually, that's not what it says, is it? Look at that. Is that what it says? So that we can praise him? No, it's so that the purpose of our life would be to be for the praise of his glory. Not just that we would praise him, as if that's just something that we occasionally do, but because that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be praising him. We are supposed to be for the praising of him. We're supposed to be the praises of him. We're supposed to be doing that. None of this is supposed to be active, passive on our part. It's supposed to be active. We're not spectators in the cosmos. We're not spectators in our own salvation and our own sanctification. We're actively part of this. He says, I want you to be involved. Paul says, you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. That's when you actively, consciously got involved with the plans of God that had been in the works since before time began. It doesn't mean that your life wasn't involved in that before that. It, it was, because it doesn't make any sense for God to suddenly start involving himself in your life the moment it comes to salvation. If he's omnipotent, omniscient, and he is involved at that point, he had to have been involved the whole time. This is just the point where you actively, consciously engage with the plan. Up until that point, you might have been following the plan, but you weren't trying to involve yourself with it. But all of your life has been bringing you to this moment. Whatever moment you're in, Everything up till this point brought you to this point. But that's the moment when you heard the gospel, when you made that decision. That's the point when you actively, consciously involved yourself in the great plan. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the good news that you are not just broken and finite and polluted, but that you are also forgiven and loved and adopted, that you are washed clean of everything that sullied you, of everything that uglified you. You've been washed clean when you truly believed that Christ saved you, when you truly believed that his blood redeemed you, when you truly believed that his lordship should direct you, 
Having believed, Paul says, you were marked in him with a seal, like the king's signet ring pressed into hot wax, where he says, this is my declaration forever in my name. Having believed, having connected yourself, you were marked with him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, pressed into the hot wax of your soul. So that progressively, every day, indelibly, you're being formed more and more into his likeness. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Which, if you think about it, actually summarizes everything he's been saying up to this point. The promised Holy Spirit, a who, not a what. He is in relationship with you. He is deposit and guaranteeing you. This promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, an inheritance you couldn't earn, which you absolutely didn't deserve, but you absolutely deserve now. And I'm saying that very carefully because I think we need to wrap our heads around it. Sometimes we think, yes, I was a decent person. I deserve this to some degree. You go, ain't nobody that decent. So you go, right, it's an unmerited favor. I don't merit it. I don't deserve this. And you go, of course you deserve it. Of course you deserve it. You absolutely deserve this inheritance because you're his child. You're his actual, honest-to-goodness child. Any of you adopted or have any adopted children? I mean, that's all fake, right? Or do you actually realize that even though you're adopted, you are part of that family, or even though you've adopted someone, they are genuinely your child? The love and the affection you give them, is it, you know, because you have to or else somebody's going to report you? Or do you go, no, they're my child. If we think we've earned grace, we misunderstand grace. If we think we don't, un- don't deserve our inheritance, we don't understand adoption. You have been genuinely adopted. You are a child of the living God. To the Roman church, Paul said, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We are heirs. We are co-heirs, joint heirs with Christ. We're heirs of God. It's who we are. The writer of Hebrews says that God appointed Jesus to be heir of all things, an inheritance that Peter says can never perish or spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. How many times does the Bible have to say something before you believe it? Once. But over and over we're told, no, you really truly are God's child. You really truly do have an inheritance. It is yours. It's not pretend yours. It's yours. Not because you earned it, but it's yours. But you don't really deserve it. Yes, you do, because you're a child of the the, the one giving you this legacy. Absolutely. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Peoria, let me tell you, you faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise. Do you see why? I don't even want to get to the rest of this until you understand why we're praising him. Understand what this doxology is all about. 
Because having believed, he says in verse 13, having actively consciously connected yourself, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance, our inheritance, until the redemption of those who are God's possession, until God has brought back everyone that he's planned for since before the beginning of time to be welcomed into his family. And why is this all happening? To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. So that's what I want to focus on today. All this is to the praise of his glory. And for this reason, Paul says, because of everything I was just saying, for this reason, let me launch, and I'm not going to go into it. That's for next week. But if Paul says, for this reason, the rest of the book, then I want us to wrap our head around this reason, don't I? Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Praise to his glory. Praise. Can we just focus on saying, God, you rock. Use whatever vernacular means that for you. You want to be more formal? Say, thou art worthy. But can we say that together? Can we just say, Lord, yes. Praise be to your name. The Christian life is so much bigger then did today go easily for me or bad? Do I feel good today or feel bad? Did I get to do all the stuff I wanted to do today or not? Did Bucky treat me the way I wanted to be treated or did Bucky not? Really? It's so much better, so much deeper, so much richer than that. And ultimately, the Christian life is all about relationship and reconciliation. The infinite creator deigning to come down to our anthill and crawl next to us like an ant so that he could embrace us and his really, really and for true children that he sculpted us to be. Before we talk about anything else, before we get into anything else, can we remember what it means that God loves you and chose you before he sculpted the sky, before he sculpted the world? Praise God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for your infinite understanding, infinite wisdom, but also for your amazing grace, your phenomenal love, unfailing love. Lord, I pray, help us to genuinely, genuinely fall in love with you again and to consciously, actively work on being in relationship continually, daily, brought back into perfect relationship with you, reconciled on a daily basis with you because you reconciled us at the cross. That's something that you planned since before the first letter was typed in our Bible. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for all that you are and all that you do. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.